What's good, Internet? It's the Harvest the Colin Atrophy, and I'm very happy to welcome you to episode 30, the big 3-0 of um, Radio Harvester. For my 30th birthday, I took my best friends to Medieval Times. No, 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 that was for my best friend's 30th birthday. Milo's 30th birthday, we went to Medieval Times. For my birthday, a month later, we went to a monster truck rally. Um, Medieval Times was funner than the monster truck rally, but we were on a thing where we were going to do something in Jersey at an arena every time it was the 30th birthday. Um, me and Milo were the only ones that stuck with it. We had one birthday a month uh, lined up for some, with some people that were all going to, but no one followed through. That's what you get. Um, shout out to Milo Idan, the best guy in America. Uh, anyway, this is the episode. Um, the guest is Shani Banerjee. Um, she is... Is an autodidact someone that knows how to do a lot of stuff? I'm, I'm not going to look it I might look it up and then re-record this if I'm wrong. But if I don't, and you're hearing this, it's because I was right. It's, she's like a very talented person, right? She plays a bunch of instruments. She's an artist. She's an actor. Um, we did not... I had to cut like 20 minutes of talking about her acting and art at the end because it was already running too long. But um, I'll put a link to her website in the thing. Her band, Empty Beings, is really good, and she's a wild ass, and I think you'll enjoy this. It's a fun conversation. All right, bye. father was a sitar player um who was super talented and uh yeah my dad played fiddle and guitar growing up um and so I always had like interest in it but I didn't start playing violin until I was like seven like when I okay. like tried it in school actually um <clears throat> I had like a brief uh like so all the Indian kids like essentially like the parents would be like okay so here are their activities so we can like carpool together yeah for sure and so they would uh so we had a french canadian um piano teacher named mrs patterson um mrs patterson <laughs> and <laughs> she was she was wonderful um, i learned about stealing because i stole I stole from her and it was the first time that I ever like really reckoned with that guilt of stealing yeah. something. It was really weird. What'd you steal? Um, I was, <laughs> so she had gone to like Bermuda or something with her family and you know, those like, uh, like slices of like quartz or like if you, you know, those like those rock slices, it was like that and some like sand from Bermuda. Um, I decided to steal those things and I felt such immense guilt over it. Um, I still tell my friends to this day and now I will tell the public. Um, I had this thing called guilt farts where I would just like feel so <laughs> guilty and I would just like let it rip. And I, I just realized like I couldn't live with that kind of gas all the time and yeah. guilt. So um, like I had to choose one. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I I regular farts now, just like yeah. dairy. <laughs> no more. Do you still steal stuff? Do you just not feel guilty? No, I mean it depends from. I mean, you know. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I would say that it's you know it's like uh, you learn 
things about being one of the public, a member of the public. And yeah. sometimes there's just a moment where there's an exchange of energy or physical property. Yeah. I almost walked out of Rite Aid with a master lock, like a padlock today. Did you have the key for it though? It was, yeah, was no. It, like, it, was, it was in the package. I was purchasing it mm. and there was like, this guy was buying 75 packages of Easter candy and <laughs> the lady at the checkout had rung, is ringing him up and she like got to item number 68 and was like, Oh, we have to start over again. No, and I, no, no. And, I, and, I, and there was two people in front of me in line. And I almost was just like, fuck this. And just walked out of the store with it. Um, and I like, obviously the like adult, I mean, I used to steal a lot. I was never really good at it, but I stole like all the easy targets. Like I stole from American Apparel and stuff all the time. <laughs> I uh, I worked at American Apparel. and No I, shit. There were, there were many times where I had to look the other way. Is the is the myth true mm. that they no chase policy? No, I had <laughs> heard that I I knew I had heard that they the um that fucking the, uh, the predator uh, predator <laughs> that ran that company Dove Charney um I had heard that he had a policy that was that you should let people steal because young people that steal are cool trendsetters and if dorks that don't steal see the cool stealers <laughs> wearing the clothes then they'll um sell more stuff i mean there's truly nothing more inspiring than um form-fitting jersey cotton <laughs> yeah so um you you right on the nail Doug. Could be, could um be right. yeah. i don't know if that was maybe like the the motivation for our 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 number one thieves this mom and daughter couple was my favorite um, i didn't last like long there though um i remember I remember one of my friends told me that um, whoever had come to set up the store actually said that they 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 were like, yeah, we we hired her because we needed some color in the store. Oh Jesus! But you know, I was like eighteen, and yeah. I was like, I just like I need whatever jobs I right. can get. Granted, I feel like my rent was like seventy five dollars in Bluefield at the time. Yeah. But um, yeah, I I remember uh, just being like mortified that. That I had to, to just yeah. like keep like knowing this information. I was like, oh god, I'm I'm definitely s- selling something down the river, you know? Yeah, that's <laughs> fucked. That's such a and it's such like a, it, it's it takes a real lack of self awareness to like say that out loud within earshot of you and think that it's okay. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It was I. It was also such a strange time. I think like Pittsburgh was like in a really interesting place. That, you know, I'm 31 now. I'll be yeah. 32 this year. So yeah, that was like 14 years ago. Um, and I feel like that does intersect a lot with like, I, I just like rode bikes all the time. I didn't know how to drive. Um, I just like rode my bike everywhere. Um, I learned to ride, really ride and like build a bike by going to free ride. Um, in East, Over by the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, like in um, Homewood. No shit. Yeah, cool. like Homewood, Larimer, yeah. East Liberty, like that entire area. Um, so I think the kind of like cultural aspects of like it was it was funny because also like hipsters were like just becoming a thing then. Yeah. Um, and I I didn't like totally understand that's what it was, and somebody called me a hipster once, and I was like, I I guess like I mean I like I don't 
I don't, I don't know. And like that kind of intersects with that definition of like, um, this kind of like identity crisis, I think that like happened with, I know that entire like era of kind of digital, um, like social media coming up, um, everything from like live journal to like, I never hit Tumblr. Like that was kind of after me. Yeah, I'm 36 and yeah, I have a similar experience. Right. Where you're like, what is that? Prolific on live journal, but (laughs) Tumblr was never really. Oh yeah. I segued really naturally from making (laughs) zines to not making anything and just doing live journal. Yeah. Cause it was like, it was the same people I was interacting with through the mail, but it was immediate. You know, so it's like yeah. I don't need to wait. That to was, get a and back I think mu- music was one hundred percent this like the entry into that because I feel like anybody who was like download like stealing music right. at the time was dealing with you know you're you're dealing with a community ultimately. Yeah, for sure. And that was actually really fascinating because there were so many like fucking you know deep cuts that I got to hear as a result of just like a weird rip you know what I mean or like somebody like giving you uh like a playlist of something whether it was like cd based like my friends still made like tapes you know then but um but yeah I mean there were like mad cds that my friends made me that got me through like a million breakups yeah oh I believe it um but yeah like I I think that kind of predecessor and I don't I don't know what that was for a lot of at least like young girls honestly like female identified individuals at the time um because you know as soon as like live journal just that was like such an immediate intersection with like i was like i can just blast my fucking feelings out here yeah yes and then that's when you kind of real like that that community uh happening around you too it was like really interesting to see people that you knew what their kind of like inner monologue was or like what they were reading or looking at and it often intersected with music and that was such a way like that I got to know people it's so funny like Sarah is my one of my best friends I live with her and I first met her when I was I think um I think it was like 16 or 17 and I knew her as like Sarah Fim on MySpace and she's still on my fucking phone (laughs) as Sarah Fim um and you know, like going to shows like at Garfield Artworks back yeah. then, like that was one hundred percent a part of like so that I that there was like this uh, delineation between like what kind of like a subcultural element you were. Like we didn't really have that opportunity. I feel like in Pittsburgh back then. So like I think there was a what lot. What do you mean? What opportunity? Um, the opportunity to have like a lot of different subcultures just kind of overlap and mix. Like there were only like a few spaces that were like really welcoming. And I think it really Pittsburgh. I feel like has a has a pretty pretty strong history of segregation um, from everything from like redlining districts for like you know purchasing power um, in terms of like the the city itself um, and uh, you know really stopping people from being like especially people of color from being able to get loans right um, just like really forgetting entire neighborhoods that were working class um, the the entire migration to the suburbs and then kind of coming back from that and being a part of that era of like people moving back into the city and what that meant um and i i I really really think that you know music and that aspect of subculture with all of us just kind of having these like small groups of people that we were all like "Eh, i guess we're all kind of being freaks together Mm -hmm. um kind of challenging those those 
I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that they were like idealized norms, but they were norms certainly. Like nobody really questioned them. Like too subcultural much. norms, or um, I would say more so on the on the cultural, like on the um, like I don't want to say like mainstream culture, but you know just you know what our parents were doing. Sure, like, yeah, yeah. You know it was it was a really different time for them. Um, <laughs> but I think what's like interesting about like just being a Pittsburgher at that point, like we're all going to have the same like stories of growing up here, um, what that meant on, yeah, on that kind of like mainstream focus, but then being a part of subculture, you just, you know, I remember going to like hip hop shows at like the Pittsburgh Deli Company and like, um, you know, we would, I feel like there were just like a few spaces that you would just like access Shadow Lounge and Ava Lounge. I think ended up being really monumental for punks and it was but it was like such a um burgeoning piece of Pittsburgh in so many ways like economically socially musically artistically like shadow lounge was like the cornerstone of so much yeah and i don't i don't even know what that is oh I've no only lived here two years. i i what is it now it's um I'm really happy. Jamilka Borges, she um, is the head chef at Lorelei, which is now in in that space. And it was really it was really great to hear that such like an incredibly talented, um, smart, and just like badass individual um, who is who like is just putting you know female chefs and like Puerto Rico on the map with her her food. She like she's she's just done so much to have her take that space yeah. and have control over it like felt I, I just as somebody who like really loved that space and had seen so many shows there like Big Frida KRS-One um I'm trying like I've played shows there you yeah, know Selecta sure. DJing like just so many formative moments um and that was with like a bunch of like everybody would just go kind of congregate there so um, that was that same era of just being in a space that you were just like, okay, well, this is where the party is, so we'll just go to the party, and like right. everybody just showed up, you yeah. know. Um, it's really different now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Let's back up a little bit and to before we get to going to shows in high school. So you're yep. you're a kid. You're yeah going. You're getting bussed around with all the other Indian after school activities. Yeah. Was there, were you? Did you grow up in like a diasporic community? Was there like a yeah a pretty big Bengali community? Absolutely. Here? My grandfather uh, and grandmother helped to start the Bengali Association of Pittsburgh. And actually, okay. um, the one main ads music video that I did, one of our family friends like had found footage of them doing the very first like uh, religious ceremony that they ever did here called oh, a is puja. That what the footage is? Yeah, yeah, Whoa. in the wash away video. Yeah, um, that's cool. And so, yeah, those are my grandparents. It's like it was like the early '70s in like Oakland. I like, yeah. you know, um, at uh, at Shwati Mashi's house, and uh, it's when I saw that I was just like, whoa! First of all, everybody's hair looks dope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but also just this idea of like, yeah, like growing, just like being like kids in basements, like eating like food made by, you know, all of our aunties and like these people who just immigrated here and immediately plugged into something. Yeah. Um, and I honestly, like I 100% attribute my like just kind of finding of punk and like just any, that sense of community was definitely always present. Yeah. I remember being a little kid in New York. I like had friends from all over. And so I had a lot of, my parents were like, um, like good liberal atheists or whatever. <laughs> um, but they like, uh, I would go to like 
I went to a lot of synagogues for bar mitzvah, but I would go to all kinds of religious services on weekend mornings after sleepovers, like all kinds. I've yeah, been to right. Every kind of Christian church. I've been to so many synagogues. I've been to um, Hindu temple a bunch. I've been to the mosque. Like I've done it all. And Hindu temple was always my favorite because the food is dope. Well, yeah, because the kids <laughs> we would they would just we would like all go there in the minivan and then. The kids would all go and just play unsupervised on a playground for like an hour while the adults did the religious stuff. Yep. And then we would come downstairs into the basement and there was just like <laughs> steam trays of delicious ass food yep. on little, um, what's it, sternos. Yep. And then like everyone would eat and it was so sick. And I, I have no idea what the religious ceremonies are like as opposed to like the number of times I dozed off in a Presbyterian church or something. But like... I love that shit, just like being unsupervised. And also I feel like um, of all the different like ethnic communities I got to kind of like dip into as a child, just like attending family events with my friends' families or whatever, I feel like my Indian friends stayed up the latest. Yeah. Always. They were always like Because we, we would eat at like 8.30. Yeah. And there was always just like, they would like, their parents would all party till super late. Yeah. And there was no like... Like with my white friends or like my family, it was like, okay, got, like my parents would be partying or whatever, but they'd be like, time to put you to bed. But then like I'd go to my Indians friends' houses and it nah, was just like- Nah, you're like playing craps in the basement, don't Yeah, <laughs> no, you just stay up partying till you fall asleep too. Like it's yeah. not, and I really, I think that kind of freedom to like negotiate the world as a child is probably really fucking cool, right? It's, well, it's interesting because there's so many restrictive elements in right. terms of, um, especially being Indian. And like, I, <laughs> it's been, it's been such like a <laughs> kind of like parallel journey, I guess, through that too. Because yeah, so like my grandfather came here in 1958. Um, he was sponsored by the Rotary. And my dad and my grandmother came over in like, I think it was 1960. Okay. So my dad was like two. And they were, so there, there were a couple, um, like, uh, migrations that happened. Um, and the more, I guess, more recent, there were two big ones. Basically, like, they had shipped some Indians over, um, kind of like in the railroad, um, gold rush era. But it was like a little bit after the Chinese had got here to build the ra- railroads. And so basically like the Indians, like the Punjabis specifically, like didn't really get it. Like they didn't get the, the any sort of like money or like work from that. So they ended up pushing further west and they missed the gold rush too. So uh-huh. then they ended up pushing north. And um, there was like an, I think it was a, in 1910, there was an, a massacre in Bellingham, Washington. Um, and it was because they had a, a bunch of Indians um, had uh, kind of settled there after not really getting anything from like Northern California and they just right. kept pushing upward. And um, they, there, yeah, there was this big like racist clash that happened. Yeah. Um, so interestingly enough, like Vancouver, Canada has such an established like kind of Indian community at large. So whereas like I would still refer to like my existence with, you know, fellow Pittsburgh, uh, like Indians, it was a pretty small, you know, even, even in terms of like, you know, Punjabi, Gujarati, Bengali, and Bengali, um, you know, everybody still kind of had their own like smaller groups, but it wasn't that big. It's huge now. Um, You see a lot of things like organized 
crime and like multi-generational um uh, experiences happening up in that like northwest or in, sure. yeah northwestern yeah, yeah, region yeah. um like pacific northwest versus like some of these kind of like more internal cities because the the migration just hadn't hit so the next wave happened um between the 40s and the 60s and yeah. it was mostly bangladeshi people that had come over um after the schism between india pakistan right. um east pakistan which became bangladesh so they ended up really um actually New York that's where they landed well, yeah that's what I was going to say all my friends from all my Indian friends in New York their parents came over uh, either as children or like mm-hmm. as adults in between the probably 60s to early 80s yeah so my my parent my my family was like in that first push of right. that yeah um that kind of era and prior to that you were still kind of like a usually an unskilled worker so like anybody who came over in like the 40s 50s you were you weren't coming over on like a1 you know visas or i don't think it was a1 at the time but um you were just coming over because you were just you like you got on a boat you know yeah because the british empire had been forcing you to do manual labor for yeah exactly yeah. yeah so like you just you got on a boat and you came here and so I feel like a lot of, they, I know that there was like a huge migration into East Harlem. And so there's, if you, I think if you talk to um, a lot of, I think like generationally, you'll, you'll find that kind of in, in like ancestral heritage. Like you'll find that somebody's got like a Bangladeshi like grandpa like way back in oh, the, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and so even that, like just having these kind of like the, these, classist elements of how immigration and emigration worked like um you know my my grandfather was somebody who had the opportunity to go to college and you know was sponsored for his work in agriculture um his research and um you know he was like studying agent orange and shit no shit yeah then i was like yo i've seen agent orange Um, yeah, I have like his dissertation and it was on, it was on that. Yeah. So pesticides in agriculture. Um, but the, it was still like few and far between. It was really hard to get that and to right. have the fi- financial means to be able to do that. It was yeah. not as, as, you know, fluid as it was in the later seventies and eighties. Yeah. So you didn't just grow up in a diasporic community. You grew up like in the family of the pillars of that community. Yeah. I was, yeah. Oh, I, Mike, they, they'd be like, your grandmother is such like a social butterfly. Like, home, she's like fabulous. She's yeah. like, she knows it. Um, like wonderful style. But like, yeah, my grandfather played sitar. He like, he played with Ravi Shankar. When Ravi Shankar came here in the 70s, they like stayed at my grandparents' house. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, my grandfather was invited by, you know, Princess Grace Kelly to play at this um, like world showcase in Washington, D.C. in the 60s. So sure. there's like these like dope pictures of my grandparents at like the Smithsonian and stuff. And like, she's like wearing this like white, like high collar, like, like white suit. And she has this, like, kind of, like, bouffant bun. It's so sick. I'm like, where did that suit go? She's like, I can't fit into it anymore. (laughs) It's so, like, I feel like when you start to look at the, like, I think a lot of the people that make, like, kind of maybe more rougher-seeming kinds of art or whatever, Mm -hmm. they oftentimes have, like, a legacy in their family. Like, 
uh, Prodigy from Mob Deep, his mom was in the Crystals, the girl group. Really? You know that song she yeah. hit me and it felt like a yeah. kiss. Fucked up song. Right. I mean, it's, great. it's a great song. It sounds yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, terrible lyrics. Right notes. Um, but yeah, but his like his mom was in the crystals. His aunt, I think, owned like this uh like pretty famous uh like black dance studio in uh Laurelton, Queens. Like he grew up in like an arts family, you know, and then it be- and like uh Nas's father is uh uh like jazz musician Oludara. You know what I mean? That's and you get sick. these kind of like these intergenerational moments. And I feel like also with like with punks that I speak to, you know, a lot of the story of punk is um, my family were horrible and I ran away as fast as I could or whatever. Right. And like a lot of our friends have these kind of super tragic pasts that are like riddled with trauma and whatever. But um, I feel like just as often, especially at this point where we're on like the, I don't know, punk generations are so short. We're on like the 15th punk generation. <laughs> You know, since it started, where it's like, uh, you get people whose parents were involved in subculture, whether it was uh, like uh, an in, like a um, an ethnic community subculture, or like uh, you know, parents who like were in the voidoids or something. You know what I mean? Or like, they don't, I, I think there was like even kind of. I mean, you you knew when you were like a part of something different. You knew when yeah, you were different. Exactly. You know. Um, like, yeah, like, I, I, I feel like either, either you're like rebelling completely against June Cleaver or you were, you were just like, we were never there to begin with. Yeah. Um, and I think that was like actually kind of the interesting part about my family story because my dad was kind of like first, like, uh, he was really first ish generation. I say that I'm like, you know, like second and a half because my uncle was born here. Um, and I was born here. But, you know, my my dad was two, um, so, you know, he, he got made fun of as, like, Bucktooth Bobby, you know, and, like, yeah. we grew up, yeah, we grew up, you know, across, like, he grew up in, across from Temple Emmanuel, um, in, in, uh, in Mount Lebanon, and, um, yeah, like, the, it was, yeah, I, I always used to joke because, like, I had a bunch of um, Jewish friends growing up. Like, one of my best friends was Jewish, and she would come and dance with me, and then I would, like, go to, like, she, she referred to it as Jew crew. Like, it was, like, her, like, youth group. Yeah. Um, and then my my ex-boyfriend was Jewish, and I'd be like, yo, we'd have Hindu babies. What? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was... I don't know. It was really interesting, like, the the those ethnic community, like, there, there are just some kind of like realities that you have where you're like, oh, okay, like grandma's gonna like throw this guilt trip on you, and yeah, you're like gonna watch like your, you know, all the dads like watch a game yeah. somewhere, even if like they're not into the games. Like that was my favorite part was like seeing all the dads that you were just like, I've I've never seen you get interested in a sport ever, but like here you are with a Johnny Walker black label, yeah, <laughs> like posted up watching it. Okay. Um, and then understanding like the moms in that era and my mom had multiple sclerosis. So we had like a particularly different, like we had a, we had a mutation of the American dream that is still not talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, I think that was like a big part of what kind of pushed me towards, um, like I was just like a really depressed 
kid and I didn't yeah. understand what that meant, what that felt. And it, you know, I literally am 31 and, and like I'm able to go to the therapist and they're like, oh, well, there's PTSD that comes from like caretaking in this way. And I was like, there was no language for that when yeah. I was growing up. Like you, I remember my mom was like, we've never heard of anything like mel- mental illness. <laughs> right. like we, I was like, just because you didn't talk about it didn't mean that it wasn't in existence right there. for sure um so having them kind of grapple with that so it was like a real clash of i think values that um like an kind of in a, inability to accept where you actually are in life yeah um versus where you thought you needed to be and i think that's where punk really was able to like like fill a void honestly yeah. so how did you find punk like what was your introduction um i feel like there were there were a, a few um i remember hearing i want to be your dog and just being like this is the fucking sickest guitar riff ever like i yeah it's still one of my favorite songs it's so and good. i you know I, my relationship to that song over the years and just like as I got more into, you know, performative stuff, as well as like understanding, you know, the kind of uh, musical and like the technical elements of that song, um, understanding what was happening in Detroit at that time, like the historical elements. Um, Of course, I didn't know any of that. I just was like a 10 year old that was like, what is this? (laughs) Like losing my mind. And then um, Alex Padel, who sings for Submachine, um, was a friend of my dad's. And my dad would be like, my friend's in a punk band. I'd be like, all right, dad, you listen to John Tesh. Like, let's like step it back I don't believe you. And he used to, but my dad used to play at Piper's. And that's where I met Alex. And um, that was kind of like that. And then my friend, Amantha Michaelopoulos, um, who's like going to be mortified. But I'm like, yo, <laughs> I talked about you. But for real, like we were like in eighth grade um, when I became really good friends with her. And like, you know, she was the homegirl with like the platinum Chelsea and like the leopard print skirt. <laughs> and she like, yeah. she looks so, I was just like, whoa, um, who, like, who is this? You know, like we're doing like tarot like you know um amantha was definitely one of the first people that i like went to shows with yeah um god we were on pit punk (laughs) is that a message board yes all right that's a deep cut (laughs) our generation is like a specific like our generation specifically because i think the like message board culture doesn't exist and kind of stopped existing in the way that it did. I, I feel like has this the robato board still is like <laughs> yeah has this relationship to like regional message boards um oh yeah that is like i can't wait till 30 years from now when someone <laughs> writes a dissertation thesis about it because i'm curious it's true what the social ramifications were of mm-hmm. like that kind of interaction as adolescents it's it's still it's funny how pervasive it still is i feel like a few years ago somebody manny thiner was like trying to get my number and he posted on the robotic board and like thread was just it just like annihilated (laughs) oh you're trying to get her number like you're trying to get shawnee's number on the robotic Oh, like just more because I was never actually I never I never got on it I would yeah. like snoop it I would like lurk but yeah for sure um do you remember what your yeah. first show was oh my god oh my first show was the Ramones final tour for someone's bar mitzvah oh my god shut up yeah but my 
That's so sick. <laughs> it's really funny. That is amazing. But, but my first real show, like that, I was went it Dee Dee Ramone's rap career at all? No, no, no. no. It was way <laughs> post Dee Dee. CJ was playing bass. Okay. All right. um, my first real show that I went to was like, I, I won tickets to it, like, F, like local show from, yeah. a, from a skate shop, and it was at this like club that did shows for teens, and it was this band Electric Frankenstein who was like. I think they're they're like I don't even remember what they sounded like, kind of like garagey, like gearhead punk, you know? Yeah. Did you? And that's amazing that you remember that. Yeah. Though. And Lifetime, the like kind of emo-ish Jersey mm-hmm. band played. Oh yeah. And that was Lifetime and Electric Frankenstein was my first ever show I remember, very vividly. But then after that, I went to so many shows for like like I started I figured out there was local matinees and shit. And I started going to the daytime shows with all the other teens. And those, I couldn't tell you what fucking bands I was seeing. Right. I mean, that that's like also kind of a an interesting part of that era of like, because the documentation wasn't there like it is now. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, like I bless all my friends who just have like photo albums of flyers. Like, I love you. I don't know why I didn't have that foresight. I'm always like, ah, I should have done, <laughs> I should have done that. Um, but also, so I... My first concert, I sure. think that, yeah, I, think, let's start there. I think that's really important because my dad was playing um, in a country band called Silverado and they played the Y108 country jam at, <laughs> at um, Icy Light Amphitheater, which is, uh, I don't know what it's called now. I don't even know if it's an amphitheater now. Sure. It's like by, it's like right on, uh, on the Mon there um, and... Yeah, so I just remember like being backstage for that, um, and then, but that's the thing is like my, my I was like the baby in the bar, yeah. like my dad would be playing like somewhere on like Route eighty eight and like no man's land, and um, I'd be going to like a show, you know, there and like his bandmates and I grew up, I so there that's that other really important element of subculture that I grew up in was like the folk Americana YEP calliope scene, mm-hmm. um, which was, this, it was like a full-blown scene. Like it was like, it, it's huge. Yeah. Um, and my dad's bandmates were probably the most influential people um, to me musically. And, you know, I yeah, I was just like always getting dragged to like a show. So there was like even a part of my life as a child that, Indian kids, like even the people that I was supposed to relate to, could not relate right. to, and so it it really did put me in an awkward place. Yeah, for sure. And plus, like gender bending on top of that, where I was like, I'm a tomboy, and they were like, yeah. sick bowl cut kid. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it was like bowl cut Bermuda jean shorts with like that were like all different color, like stripes of taupe. Um, a lot of bottle green <laughs> turtlenecks and boots, <laughs> which hasn't changed too much. Like yeah. I literally am wearing that right yeah, now. Yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, so there was like that other element of my dad being a musician. And like, I realize now that like so much of it is, it was such a response to the trauma of having a paralyzed wife. Like the pressure of having these kind of societal norms being put on him, yeah, sure. having to maintain that, but then like being a brilliant musician. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think we, we would still both very honestly talk about trying to strike that balance. <laughs> yeah. We were never going to. Um, but yeah, so that it was that. So that's when like, I remember when No Doubt came to Pittsburgh for the Tragic Kingdom tour, um, I 
was just like obsessed. I was like, I have to go, please, yeah. let, please, please. But there was nobody to take me. And my my mom, like I said, was paralyzed. So she, we would have um, healthcare aides that would help and come to the house for a few hours and help with like anything from like, you know, cooking and cleaning to organizing to writing bills and checks, like yeah. things like that. Um, and eventually it was, you know, putting her in bed, you know, feeding her all this stuff um, as the disease progressed. But I remember Heather, she had a, this really sick, like, uh, what was the car? The, the, in the like tops and windows, it was like a T-top. Uh-huh. Um, I'm trying to remember. I want to say it was like a Mazda. It was like a t- it was a T-top though. So we had to like unscrew like the windows and part of the roof and like put them in the back. Like it was, <laughs> there was no like, you know, like yeah. Lamborghini Diablo like fucking doors sliding up. Like you were doing manual labor to get that air. But oh, it was awesome. Yeah. And she took me in that car. She and she was so oh, what a babe. So she would wear like cool. these like high waisted like nineties shorts. Like she had those like really thin like gel bangs, but the rest of her hair was like super curly and big. Um and she was just so sweet and she took me to see No Doubt. Wow. And I was just like, Holy crap, like how lucky am I? Yeah. You know? Um I still remember it, it was like slightly drizzling because we um you know, we're in the, like, we were just shy of the pavilion. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Um, but yeah, and but that, like, I mean, obviously, like, it's funny because now looking back on Gwen Stefani, like, there's so many issues that I have with her. But as a performer, like, yeah. she was monumental, I think, for, you know, my entire generation. So, um, and then hearing about bands like, you know, Fishbone and stuff from what, you know, what was what their influence was, you know, also kind of led me to being able to find shows on my own. So um, I think like to to really be like this is my first show i don't yeah who cares it was no doubt because we would go because we would also go to like the unitarian church and our friends bands would play right you know yeah like, it was stuff like that that i was like those were just as formative yeah that counts too that's like that's the thing is your first show could be mm. um fucking uh like uh fart zombies but also you know what like it was like baroness like um at roboto um gang gang dance at uh garfield artworks io um bread and water like there were there were like some really you know that was that era too where i was like for sure like what is it melodic hardcore That was a that was that was a strange era, but everybody had two vocalists. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad it's over. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I'm not, I'm not missing, I'm not missing. I was like, you can do other things with power chords. Say. <laughs> yeah. I'm being licked by a dog. Oh yeah, Basti, come on, all right, baby girl. No, it's okay. <laughs> Is she What's okay? Her name? Okay, Basti. Basti. Yeah, she's. Basti, you're beautiful. She is. She's. <laughs> I'll take a picture of Basti. I was so terrified when I when I first got her. Um, she hated any musical sounds. Like she would just bark incessantly no at me, and was terrified. And I was like, "Oh my god! Like this is like such a huge part of my life. Like what?" But then she got hip to it. And then yeah. um, Mike Lachlan, who plays for Derkata, um, and uh, 
um, played for like cattle decapitation and stuff. She, she 100% um, like shit on a double bass pedal. No shit. <laughs> like, it was, that was definitely one of the, the funnier moments in, in my musical history. Yeah. So you're going to local shows and stuff in high mm-hmm. school. You're seeing your friends' bands. Are you playing music in bands yet in high school? So I am a classically trained violinist. Right. Um, so because I, so I, I saw my dad play, but he like could never teach me. He like couldn't do it. So um, finally, when I was twelve, I was like still playing, and I would like pick things up by ear. I clearly had like a penchant for it. Yeah. Um, and so they finally got me some private lessons like my dad was like doing well financially at the time and um so i had like russian conservatory trained teachers that like but they were also like living living some like subcultural pittsburgh lives which like is really interesting to interact with as i'm older but um learned so much there and then uh yeah but in high school i remember like wanting to like sing in bands and stuff but like straight up like i we got like dude boxed out like all the women who could like do so and we didn't i don't know i just didn't have the confidence then to just like pick up an instrument and be like i'm playing this in a band it wasn't until i got to um baltimore when i went to college that i was just like I'm going to just, like, improv on this fiddle and see what happens, you yeah, know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a lot of people's story. Like, did you see BB and the Blips when they came here? No, I didn't get to. But they're fantastic. Uh-huh. And, like, Bryony, the singer, uh, who's also in that band Good Throb and, like, has been in a bunch of really cool bands, she is, like, one of the most impressive performers I've ever seen in my life, you know? Um, she's so good. And then I was talking to her the next morning for the radio show, and I was like talking about her history playing in bands and she was just like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I guess I never thought that I was allowed to yeah. when I was young. You know? Or like straight like, up, like I would ask my dude friends and they'd be like, oh, this person who has shown zero, like and any kind of interest in other than like being a fan of music is going to sing for us. But the people who can sing. Yeah, not are not going to. Not there were some. There were some like failed attempts with like some some dudes. But the thing, honestly, like, um, I feel like around that same time, I found like drugs too. But yeah. like, I couldn't, um, I couldn't, I couldn't like keep it all together. I was like, ah, I'm, I'm like, it's like you're okay. You're doing drugs and you're depressed. Doing drugs and making art and you're depressed, like, it, but still, like, make it to some sort of a practice for something. You know what I mean? Like, try to be yeah. involved. Try to still be, like, the good Indian kid. Um, and then eventually I just, like, I just lost my mind. I was like, this is not, uh, this is unsustainable. Yeah. Um, but somehow, yeah, something kind of, like, flipped in. Um, when you went to Baltimore? Yeah, yeah. Is it just being in a new place, do you think? Um. Honestly, I started working, it was working in Baltimore. That was what really changed things because I still kind of got that same vibe from like, I went to an art school. I was, um, you know, I'm still like extremely intent. Like nobody was like, you know, um, nobody was like, you should go to art school that in my life that was like, we're going to support this. They were like, okay, what does that mean? We don't know. We we thought you were going to go, you know, be a doctor someday. And I was like, that's not going to happen with me. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I ended up uh, going to the Maryland Institute College of Art. It was the only school that I went to visit. I got on a bus and went there, and I was like, this city seems a lot like Pittsburgh. Okay, I just need to get Whoa. out of Pittsburgh. 
but I need to go, you know, I was like, okay, this works for me. It looks familiar enough. It's amazing. It's, it's really amazing. It's a really incredible city. I like, they've had so many, just like, just so many things like working against um, them, but there's there like the cultural elements of the city that are just like really, um, I'm like my favorite Thanksgiving was in Baltimore, you know, oh. when I got like invited yeah. to um, my friend, my friend who I worked with at um, the same the same bar where I met my first band, <coughs> Scary River. <laughs> but they were yeah, they were like, um, I don't know, they were like a very pretty sounding shoegazy band. And we played some weird ass shows. Um, and then yeah, I went to, to Jerry's family's Thanksgiving in like East Baltimore and uh I remember his uncle being like do you look at your own shit after you poop and I was like yeah and he was like it means you don't trust yourself and I was like what does that mean like my mind was blown I was like I don't know I don't know (laughs) it still haunts me to this day I'm like sometimes you just gotta check to see if like did you eat beets that day or are you internally bleeding yeah no that's not (laughs) That's like an aphorism that an old drunk says that doesn't actually uh, Yeah, but I but the fact that it stuck with me so hard, I yeah. was like, that was my favorite. I had to be his, his girlfriend because he was dating a white girl named Megan. And uh, he they his family knew that he was like dating somebody seriously, but he hadn't said anything about who it was. And he was like, I can't I can't bring her home for this, but they know I'm dating somebody, so do you want to just pretend to be my girlfriend? And Whoa. I was like, all right. Sure. I was like, there's food involved. There's liquor involved. Like I'm down. Okay. Um, so yeah, we went out to Cherry Hill and, uh, and he was just like, um, okay. Like th- these are these like little facts. And so finally, like his one uncle called me out and was like, you are too good for him. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, that's bullshit. But also, meh. <laughs> So, but, but that, yeah, I, I realized like it was working at the Owl Bar yeah, um, outside of campus and stuff. Cause like, I honestly couldn't relate to like a lot of the kids that were um, at school there. And so I ended up leaving and then going back. Did you study back. music there? Did you study fine art? I, I, yeah, I studied photography and film. Photography, um, okay. And yeah, which is so funny that it kind of comes full circle. Like here I am now, like finally showing work. <laughs> it yeah. took a long time. Um, yeah, so that, I would say that that's like the first place I really was like, I can do this. And then I kind of, I didn't stop after that. Yeah. And you came right back to Pittsburgh after school. Where'd you go? (laughs) Um, (laughs) ich habe in Deutschland geliebt vor sechs Monaten. (laughs) Um, I was engaged to an Austrian orthopedic surgeon. Um, when I was 20. (laughs) (laughs) Like 21. And I moved to Germany. I moved to Munich. (laughs) Where'd you meet him? Um, he was doing a residency at Johns Hopkins. (laughs) And, and my, um, one of my really good friends, Nick, um, I, I just go, actually, I just gone to see my friend Seth in, um, Hawaii or 
no, I'm sorry, he was in uh, Encinitas, California at the time. But he was like, he Seth is like so formative in my punk experience. And like, I'm pretty sure everybody in Pittsburgh who was like around then would be like, oh yeah, you guys did insane shit all the time. Um, but uh, yeah, we dated for a little bit, we broke up and like I would, every place that he's lived, I'm just like, I'm coming to visit you. Cause he always picks like mad tropical joints. So I'm like, all right, great, yeah, cool, brilliant, thank Good. you. Um, but uh, I just gotten back from California and my friend Nick was like, so do you think this is a scam? Do you think this is like a Craigslist scam? Like this like really hot, like Austrian doctor wants to like live here. And I was like, I don't know, take a gamble. And he was like, I can't tell, like, is he gonna be into me or is he just like European? And I was like, you know what? Like roll the dice, man. That scarf, it could go either way. Like, yeah. <laughs> so um, I, yeah, I, I met him because he was my friend's roommate. Wow. And I could not have been a more different person than this person. But I think at the time I was like, like he was, you know, he's a very symmetrical human um, and, you know, smart or whatever. Um, and I was like, I have to start that like in my in my tiny fucking stupid little like early 20s brain. I was like, oh, I got to I got to like lock this down. I got to figure things out. I needed like a solution for my life is what I was really looking for. And I was like super aimless. Like I didn't know what I really wanted to do. I was really unhappy at the school that I was at. I couldn't afford it. I was just like taking out like ass loads of loans being like, because I was told that everybody did that. And I learned later that not everybody did that. Smart people didn't do that. (laughs) Um, And yeah, it's kind of funny because I feel like my life has just been like, catching up to some of those decisions sure. ever since. So you moved to Munich. I moved to Munich. When you were 20? I was, I was 21. I just 21. Was 21, yeah. How is that? Um, Munich? I've only been to Munich briefly, and it seems like a city of only old people. It seems like... Yeah, it's a really... Fi- it's like the financial district. It's you like, know what I mean? Of anywhere. It's You're just the most like, boring place I've ever yeah, been in my life. I yeah. was in a foreign country and I was like, I didn't know I could be this bored in a foreign country. Yeah. I. It, I it's funny because like so much of my personality... It, was, it ended up being in a, uh, an abusive relationship. Um, and I, I, I actually wrote an empty being song about about it it took me years to write that song sure and de- decompress like what really happened there but yeah um i just like i shelled up as a person and i didn't know how to like meet people there it was super alienating um i had some great moments there though um and I remember there was this one time I was like walking past there was like one squat or something and there were like all these like kids and studs and i was just like all my people and I remember just like not being able to go there like that's how like restrictive my like relationship Uh. was and just being like I can't even like feign interest in this like I remember I wore this like one leopard print skirt that was that Sarah still steals from me like every if you see (laughs) her in the rock room with the leopard print skirt on it is mine it is mine um and I remember he said that I look like a prostitute and I was like all right I mean first of all What's wrong with the process? No, I was going to say, yeah. I was like, like, first of all, there's, we we're already like not on the same level with this. Second of all, like, this is like, this is not, yeah. you know, and, um, my, my best, my best friend, Alicia Tani, who was an Italian Jew, um, she, she was actually living in Germany at the same time. And she came to visit me and she was like, you got, you have to get out of this. You have to get out. And I was like, 
just give me time. I will figure this out. And yeah. so um, by the time I came back, it had gotten physical. And I literally like, I remember he like held my computer out the window and threatened to like drop it when I was trying to book a flight home. I, li- I literally was on my hands and knees begging for my computer and he like finally gave it back to me and I just like I literally carried that credit card debt for fucking four years four years until they discharged it just just so I could get home within two days Jesus yeah it was so gnarly and so it's so it's so interesting when I like talk about I still remember a lot of German like I would say like I've been back to Germany since and had a had some really wonderful experiences sure um and still have friends that I met from that time, but like I was such a shell of who I was and um, really just like did not have access to a lot of what I had here. So I came back here and have pretty much been here ever since, and that was like 2010. Okay. Wow. That's a lot to go through. Yeah. In a very short amount of time, too. It was like yeah. a small, it was a small amount of time. And like, the, I feel like the like being isolated in a foreign country where you don't know anybody and you don't have any family and you're like it's like so that's just so uh such an extreme version of that kind of like manipulative isolator kind of abusive man move yes and yeah Mm. i can't was the like did it take you a while once you got back to like kind of catch up back into your life or did you just kind of it's funny because i like i literally slid into snowmageddon that that, as we refer to it there's like people always talk about like the blizzard of 93 and then they talk about snowmageddon um and yeah we were like people you know we were like out of electricity for days and i moved back into my parents house and was like what am i what am i gonna do you know and i just i barely made it in to um chatham i like they had a rolling deadline and they're it was about to turn over into the next season and I just like slyly got my my um application in and so I kind of set myself on a course to like like a correction course where I was yeah. like I'm gonna at least finish my degree because mm-hmm. I have to do this at this point like I just need to get this out of the way yeah and just kind of figure it out from there was and, it still in photography at Chatham um <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they what well, kind of Well, it eventually that is. went back to being that, but I like had this moment where I was like, "Listen, if this like if this like fucking asshole can be a whole doctor in Europe, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna at least become a physician's assistant." <laughs> so I decided I was gonna like hard hard turn on my career path and become a physician's assistant <laughs> and like so funny i was in um i was like science the science like whatever like it's, it's just like the, this is like what the world is built upon um and i didn't realize that like writing for like science papers is like so different I was, like, <laughs> so where's where does the exposition and the denouement where like where are we putting those in this tale of this like mitochondrians existence um I, and i had met uh jake orvis at the time he played with goddamn gallows and had just like kind of um, broken off and was doing his own thing, and uh, I was yeah I was in <laughs> I was in Pittsburgh and was kind of flexing on playing fiddle, but also um, had met, like I was like super into metal then, um, and was like going to a bunch of metal shows. So I just like met a bunch of people. I just like kind of got back into it. Yeah. And um, 
yeah, Jake was like, well, do you want to like go on tour with us? So I ended up playing like the first like Muddy Roots Festival with them. Oh, <laughs> cool. And like getting pneumonia on the road with like all those crazy ass motherfuckers. Um, and I missed the first like three weeks of school and like managed to make it before it was like, you have to drop all your classes. And I remember I got back to school and went to like one biology class and was like, yeah, this is not gonna. <laughs> and I did so. I switched back to fine art at that point, and I was like, "All right, I'm just gonna roll this out and just see what happens yeah. afterwards." Like, good thinking. Gain some life skills along the way. Just finish. <laughs> and did you? When did you start playing in bands here? Um, what was like my first? Was real? that? Was it after you moved back? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I th- I feel like maybe Nomad Queen was like my first real like recorded project here i'd like worked with a bunch of people like on their records sure um playing fiddle singing um and and you know what that's not entirely true i i sang um for a lot of um a lot of like like a variety of people in hip-hop for a while like there was like this whole era of me being back and forth um between here and baltimore um and like you know really just interacting with like everyone i could possibly interact with at shadow lounge um, oh, right. Let's get back to Shadow Lounge. Yeah. What was it? Um, so Justin Strong, um, he he's now the manager at Spirit. Um, and he's just like one of the nicest, kindest, most wonderful people you'll ever meet and has transformed the city um, as a result of his work. But yeah, Justin um, just, he started this really incredible live music venue called Shadow Lounge and then expanded it to... Um, to either side of it, Ava and the the Blue Room, yeah. and um, just gave people the opportunity to have you know everything from like art to um, you know open mics and producer battles. Like that's where you know literally I would that's where, during like Rhyme Calisthenics, um, BD and Mac you know, Mac Miller, like yeah. when they were just coming up, like seeing them, seeing Wiz play um, out um, S Money. Um, there were, it was, it was really, it was really something else. Um, but yeah, it was just like an open invitation for anybody who was creative. Um, and as the rest of the neighborhood kind of, as, as Shady Side got hip to it, like that's when, you know, um, every like everybody started getting pushed out, you know. Yeah. So by the time I came back, it was kind of like the last. It was the last um, era of that, and um, yeah. So my my first recording and writing had happened with um, my my friend Joe Boots, who was like who went from punk into hip hop, and has done so many wonderful things since then. Um, he's you know a two tour vet. He is had a. a intrepid business owner um and has since left uh running his businesses now he's a phenomenal watercolor painter um earthship builder like he's he's really just one of my favorite people and prolific in pittsburgh um but yeah getting to know him and then just a bunch of like my my friend seth like just young punks that also grew up in the city Again, that kind of comes back to like where we were all just kind of thrown into the opportunities. So it was like wherever there was a party, like you just go right. to the party, <laughs> go to just get there. <laughs> 
Yeah, and it wasn't um, like stratified by uh, like niche subgenre so intensely because it's sort of a smaller city, right? So anybody that wants to party is just like, this is where I'm partying. Yeah, yeah. I lived at the corner of um, Friendship and uh, Ella Street. <laughs> I remember this this one part. We didn't have like any furniture in um, our apartment, and I, it was funny because like I met people after many years later. Um, that, you know, still lived in that apartment. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just remember we had, like, maybe, like, two folding chairs, like, metal <laughs> chairs. And uh, Kevin and Corvati came over with, like, a 24-pack of, like, Keystone ice. And then, like, the next thing you know, you, like, blink your eye and, like, there's just so many people in the apartment, like, climbing through the window, like, yeah. um, <laughs> throwing M80s off the roof, like... You know, those were <laughs> those were definitely, I think, times where that socialization, yeah, you could, you were just, because you were out and you were just like anywhere, that would happen. So I think by the time I came back, things were starting to get into that kind of stratified zone. Yeah, people, for sure. You know, we had other, you know, venue, like Laga had long since closed at that point. Right. Um, and... Or like was just about to close. It was like somewhere around there, but nobody was like going to shows, you know. There. Um, and yeah, and so I didn't. I Nomad Queen was with Adam McGregor, Justin Gizzy, Brian Gallagher, Nick Tupi, and um, and they're all like super tenured Pittsburgh musicians. Yeah. Um, and they were my friends, and I was like in you know in metal at the time, like just going to like every metal show, like especially being in Baltimore, I would just like sneak into Death Fest. Like my old band, my my old drummer from Baltimore was the manager at Sonar, so I would like go you know go to yeah see you know all just all these bands that I yeah was just like listening to because I had like ripped Mad CDs uh, from whatever like you know random like Russian like torrent <laughs> that you could find. <laughs> yes. And luckily like my friends he'd uh, he'd always have like I was just like maybe drop his last name <laughs> uh in the edit. But uh yeah he was like I think I'm up to like two terabytes now. Which was like back then I was like you, you like you had to get like multiple Multiple like yeah, five hundred gigs. So many drives to so many drives. Have two terabytes. Yes. So like I was also like really lucky to have like homies that were like do it. You know, just encyclopedic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, Nomad Queen ended up being like a traditional metal um band, and uh, I remember one of my favorite compliments I ever got. Somebody had reviewed us and said that I was like accessing like Tom G vocals and I was like yes <laughs> I was like I made it I did it <laughs> um but it was it was also yeah like Merciful Fate was like super influential in that yeah. love Venom um yeah and th that was around the time that like Lady Beast was playing out a lot too oh, and nice. okay. um Icon Gallery was like one of my favorite um like kind of crossover bands um Chaney's not gonna hear this, so we're okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, there were there were like just some like powerhouse vocalists at the time, and I was like, Yeah, you're I, in. Can, can I, I do, do it? This? Yeah. And it turns out you um, can. And I I still love that EP so much. Um, Adam is like a world tra traveler, so he moved 
Um, and then, you know, I just was a drunk, like, 25-year-old and just did some, like, wild, dumb shit at that time and, like, just never, never got it back together. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't until 2015 when I was, like, leaving um, for uh, for a residency in Iceland. Um, I'd, like, recorded a bunch of um, country stuff, before, like, between Nomad Queen and and that and was like playing fiddle and like writing a bunch of country music actually. Um, and then Dave Rosenstrauss hit me up mm -hmm. about Empty Beings. And yeah. I was literally about to get on a plane to go to Iceland for like two months. And he was like, so what do you think? And like, I listened to the demo and I was like, fuck, this is exactly what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. That, so I wrote that is cool. I wrote that first tape on a fjord in Iceland. Like you know, my part of it. <laughs> I've never been to Iceland, but it kind of sounds like it, I think. Like, there's like a, it's like, it feels like you're a little cold. Yeah, it is. When it you listen is. to that music, you yeah. know what I mean? There's like a desolation to it that I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I don't know if my rationalization means anything or makes any no, sense No, it anyone, does. Like, I mean, even down but, to like how it's recorded, like I think... Hearing the newer stuff, like hearing this record that we're putting out on Play Alone um, in relation to that first demo is like pretty disparate, I think. Um, it feels really different. But yeah. the song the song Doctor's Wife is is yeah. that the first time that I wrote um, wrote about that experience. And it literally took me years to decompress that. Yeah, for crazy. sure. It's hard to process trauma like that, especially to the point that you're like, and I'm going to just put it out there in the world. And yeah. Like... A, I want to get it out of my body in some way. Like right. singing is like literal expulsion, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then, and then B, like, I'm going to make myself vulnerable like that, you know? Like, yeah. That's pretty wild. It was, it was also cool because that was the first intersection that I really had with like just being like, wow, I can just like throw out a punk vocal now. Like I can, I can write, I can still, because like with, with the metal stuff, I was still kind of like really trying to be like, very, I was trying, I mean, I feel like I'm still like lyrically crafty, mm -hmm. but I was trying to be a lot more like narrative with that and like kind of allegorical. Whereas like, you know, what Dave and Scud and Mole gave me was like this opportunity to just like, like get, just like get a little visceral with it. Yeah, for sure. Um, And <clears throat> that was, that was like such an opportunity. And that was that song in particular. Um, yeah. Is I mean, my favorite. It's, it's still my more favorite. than a little visceral seeing you guys play. Like <laughs> you're like crawling on the floor and scream. Like yeah. I remember the first time. I think the first time me and Becca saw you and we're like, "Wow, this band is fucking good." And you were just like hopping around on the floor at Babyland. Like not even there wasn't even a song. It was a between songs. Yeah. And you were like, you were like, I fucking hate Nazis, and we're just like yeah. hopping, yeah. hopping around on the ground yeah. like a fucking goblin. Yeah, it was so cool and so strange. And we were both just like, who is this? Group? <laughs> like, that's funny. I think I was wearing like my pajamas at that show too. Um, I remember just being like, I'm gonna wear this cardigan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean. You looked like a maniac in the best possible way. Like, yeah, that's that's you, you looked like an unhinged maniac, and I was just like, "This is what punk. This is what I love in punk. It's like <laughs> a truly like whether you're unhinged in real life all the time, which it doesn't seem like you are, or like someone that knows how to kind of take the hinge off when it's time to perform. Like, it seemed like there was you were being guided by like a another hand. You know what I mean? It wasn't just like 
there's like an element of, you know, performative possession or whatever that I feel like happens. Yeah, the checkout is is like just a real a, a real thing, and that's why like honestly, sometimes like if you catch me after a show, like it takes me a little bit of time to like kind of get my bearings again and just like be. Oh yeah. Like this version of me that's like that you can hear from like t- you know two neighborhoods away laughing um whereas like the you know i think stayed that that 10 minutes that we clock in um my i think one of the best compliments i got was shawnee you look like you're gonna kill us <laughs> and i was like yeah i'll i'll totally totally s- slam into some violence right now but yeah. i like i also like giving people the opportunity to interact with it um or not like if they don't want to yeah, um, for sure. Which I think is something that is maybe a part, like, I, I don't know. I just, I feel like we still have to have, um, you know, conversations about how to, like, when, when somebody's like, oh, this is this a safe space? I'm like, there's a lot of different aspects to that. And, like, as a performer, like, how you're interacting with your audience, like, you, like, there are some times where I'm like, you know, is that crossing the line? Am I, like, taking taking away from somebody's experience potentially like I still think about that you know what I mean yeah I mean I have I I have I think maybe I don't know if how I my opinions about creating safe spaces and like spaces where everyone can feel comfortable and safe are a little complicated but like I think I have often felt like um like uh the pit at a Pantera show yeah that is not a safe space for me. Yeah. Right? But I also think the, like, cathartic power of that kind of consensual group violence that's happening for all those people that want that yeah. is more important than me getting not getting jostled. Right. And so I think there's, like, it is, like, a fine, like, because I think I remember I was never into super macho or, like, not even macho necessarily because it's not, like, gendered always, but, like, I was never into super aggressive or violent dancing at shows. Like, that uh-huh. was just never my thing. But I do remember a time when I was just young and, like, uh, wasted and kind of just flopping. Right, and, yeah. And it didn't matter to me how, how rough things got because I was just, like, I was so limber. And and I know that there's, for some people, I think, that have, like, more violent backgrounds than me, yeah. maybe. the um, Or just, like, have more rage that they need to get out that don't go to kickboxing. Yeah. There's like, there's a, there's a real physical and emotional release that happens when you're in a space where you're like, I can just flail around and wail on people. Right. That's the norm and that's agreed upon. And so I do think there's like, I'm all about, if a band is like, I want there to be no heavy dancing at my show because I want every single person here to not feel in danger, then that's great. I'm all about that. But I, I don't know if I think that Every space has to be safe for every person. Yeah, I think there's I, th- there's definitely a negotiation in yeah. in terms of that, and like still wanting to like hold on to what your your personal like artistic I think perspective is. Um, and you know, I think like, it's I remember what like first of all, like my my bandmates are um, just wonderful people that do so much and have been they're just so tenured. And they're also just like fucking geniuses. Like they're they really are like brilliant, brilliant fucking people. And um, I love every single one of their other bands. I love seeing them perform, um, and I I feel really privileged to like have the opportunity to write with them and for yeah. them to you know 
give me that platform as well. Um, and the freedom to do like whatever I want with it. You know what I mean? Like there's no, there's nothing like that. But, you know, it's also great to see like Nick Pills like get unhinged in front of like a, you know, in, on a Concealed Blade show and know that like, like I go, I go right. I'm like, all right, you know, like I don't know what I'm going to lose in this, in this yeah, pit. Sure. But, you know, there's, there's something about like seeing your friends who are also like when you're, you know, you know, we're just like ringing coffee or whatever. And then just seeing everybody just like, lose their shit is so awesome and I I but I never have felt unsafe in any of those you know experiences and I feel very lucky to be able to say that you know for sure um but honestly I think the scariest pit I've ever been in was for Nuth Grush um (laughs) and it's because it was like this it was during Death Fest and it was inside and it was a day show so it was like hot as sin and it was just like I mean because like when you like when you first listen to like human equals garbage you're like do I fully understand like do I fully understand what Dino is even about at this point where you're yeah. just like okay and then to see him in Nuthgrush like that many years later and still be like this is a brilliant motherfucker you know and like to to just to see people evolve in their art as well yeah but that and I just remember just like, it was just, you felt like it was just being crushed by a million bodies in the slowest, swampiest, like, uh-huh. um, I know, I know Game of Thrones is like controversial, but there's that episode in Battle of the Bastards and like Jon Snow is literally just like under a million bodies and you just see it, the camera just like tighten in and it's just like closing, closing, closing. The light is going away. And that's exactly how that pit fell. <laughs> I've never <coughs> seen Game of Thrones, but it's, it's cool. not, oh man, it's like, it's a gnarly moment. Um, but I think that was actually probably the, the most terrified I've ever been. Cause I was like, I don't know if I can get out of here. I'm so small and like, Oh yeah, this is, and like it was a... for the slowest fucking music. I know. That's what I was, yeah. <laughs> It was just like, you know, yeah. Yeah. But that's like, uh, that's like quicksand. It seems mm-hmm. like, like you're just like, it's, the slow it's happening in yeah. slow motion, but you're just sinking down and all of a sudden you're yeah. shin deep or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's hard like with metal, like there's like so much negotiation that you kind of have to do and just being like, I can't like, there's just bands that you're like, I'm just never going to listen to them again. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to support this. And so that conversation, yeah. Yeah. And just like having, you know, I think that's also a place where like, where the intersection with punk came in was just like, you know, having those like political leanings and trying to understand what, what they were. Yeah. Um, you know, and just being like, wait, am I, Am I an anarcho-feminist or am I a fucking libertarian? Like I don't, I don't know. I gotta, I gotta read more. You know, like there's this, these moments. <laughs> <coughs> oh, I hope you made the right choice. You know, um, I think I'm. It, I guess it depends who who's holding the other gun. <laughs> you know what yeah, I'm saying? For sure. <laughs> um, there's, yeah that that's definitely a part of that weird negotiation of being like, well, I guess I'm gonna fucking vote this time. Because I've only been able to do it for like 40 years. <laughs> yeah. like we've only had the opportunity to do it for for that long. So, um, yeah, I can't like just quit while we just got this opportunity. Yeah. Also, I don't think I've I've never not I've been an anarchist for as long as I can uh, like articulate my own politics and I've never not voted. Yeah. Like and I I've skipped 
bigger elections that I felt like it didn't matter, but I've I voted like to keep the public library open every chance I got. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah, weird yeah. little local shit. I don't think I like yeah, whatever. We don't need to have like But a, that was a that was a really unique part of Pittsburgh at that time too that brought in a lot of people to punk. Um, was like the anarchist. Yeah, the, yeah there was just yeah, the I think the poli- the politics um I don't know if they were right necessarily, but I think it was a much more visible part of punk um, at the time. It didn't feel so kind of sectioned off. Like yeah. some people just like would have to deal with politics and and we would get like people would get into this shit, you know, like, um, but at the same time, like there, we weren't sweeping anything under the rug then, yeah, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, all I knew about Pittsburgh was that Osrotten was from there for the longest time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I always thought of Pittsburgh. The last Caustic like, Christ show with Chesterfield. Uh, yeah. That was crazy. Yeah. A pretty, uh, like a, a tough, uh, like blue collar uh, city of like anti-fascist street fighters was like what I imagined. It's funny too, because if you talk to like anybody that was from that generation, yeah, they were like, we were like, we did it. We did the work. We did do the like they did do the work. They were yeah. they were the ones like fucking you know fighting people in Oakland, like fighting Nazis in Oakland to like yeah. get them out. And I think we did have like this kind of golden era where that shit wasn't here for a while because they did do the work, right? Like, and there just weren't Nazis, so there was a safe space for it. Was it real? I feel I genuinely happen. believe that there was just like a they, that they like really did go underground for a good amount of time. Um, not, and by good amount of time, like I'm gonna go ahead and say like seven years of just like yeah. it wasn't bliss but like you know we you weren't hearing as much about that kind of shit and then out of not it wasn't out of nowhere you know what i mean like there's there's no there's no question about that but i think to i think punk has become greatly apoliticized in the, that time as well so yeah. um i think there's a lot of fucking fence sitting going on. yeah it's fucking ridiculous <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so I think those are kind of more like tougher things in the present that I think I know I would handle certain ways, but like, you know, there's, and I know my friends have handled in certain ways, but like there's other shit that you're just like, do you, do we, is the wherewithal there, you know? Yeah, for sure. Fuck that he sympathy, fuck that he sympathy, fuck that he sympathy, fuck that he sympathy. Thank you to Austrotten for writing this song. It is something that in the mid 2000s everyone thought was such a funny moment. Like, how could anyone have sympathy for Nazis? Um, why would you have to write a song telling people not to sympathize with Nazis? And yet here we are in 2019, telling people not to sympathize with Nazis. Uh, what a world. So yeah, thank you to um, 
Osrotten, thank you to La Terra Occulta for writing the theme song. Thank you to Shani for being the guest. Thank you to you for listening to me and Shani talk. Uh, no thank you to um, Michael Rosfeld who murdered a child and got off scot-free because he was a cop. No thank you to um, people uh, in Israel kicking Palestinians out of their homes. Um, fuck ice. Eat shit. Uh, that's it. No cops, no creeps. Peace in the pizzeria. Bye-bye.